So today, uh, we are continuing this series, Fighting for a Good Faith, Technical Knockout, that idea of continuing to fight for what is right. Now, we have talked about several things, and next week we're going to finish this series, but we've talked a little bit about fighting nationalism, racism, homophobia, violence. We're going to talk about sexism today, and then next week it's going to be true to heart fighting ageism, okay? So what we've looked at is several verses, and I repeat these each week because I want you to kind of get them in your mind. So this key verse, 1 Timothy 6.12 says, Fight the good fight of faith. Take a hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And I said at the start of this series, it's one thing to fight for faith, but it's even better to fight for a good faith. So what does that look like? So we said that many times the problems in our world and in our society aren't just personal individual sins. They sometimes are systemic type things, and that's what Paul alludes to in Ephesians 6.12. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, as in me against you. It's often against authorities, powers of this dark world, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That is, sometimes there's attitudes and prejudice and other things that are often going on in society, and it becomes a systemic thing that continues to be passed down from one generation to the other. And then Ephesians 2.12, I mean 2.14 through 16, uh, is the bigger vision, the greater vision of the kingdom of God, for Jesus is our peace who has made two groups into one and destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law and its commands and regulations, and here's his purpose, to create in himself one humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And we could sure see a lot more of that, and we pray for a lot more of that in the world in which we live now. So we want to talk today about fighting sexism, and uh, ladies, you unfortunately have suffered the brunt of this for many, many years, and a lot of it has been because of stereotypes. A lot of that has been because of mentalities that have been passed down from generation to generation. Now, I'm going to show my age here a little, little bit like I often do in these messages, but I know some of you will remember who this is. Anybody remember this guy? Archie Bunker, right? There was a TV show that came on in January of 1971 called All in the Family. And All in the Family was really a social commentary of what life was like here in America coming out of the 60s and into the 70s. And this show ran until April 1979. And it was really a pushback using... Archie Bunker as the mouthpiece of a lot of prejudice that was in our society. And it wasn't just against women, it was also some bigotry and racism, and we've already talked about that. But we all knew that the show was coming on when we heard the theme song come on, because his wife Edith sings this theme song way off key. But here's some of the verses. The shortened version introduced the song, there is a longer version, and I want to just kind of quote the lyrics for you because it will play into the mentality of the time. Boy, the way Glenn Miller played songs that made the hit parade, guys like us, we had it made. Those were the days. 
didn't need no welfare state. Everybody pulled his weight. Gee, our old LaSalle ran great. Those were the days. And you knew where you were then. Girls were girls and men were men. Mister, we could use a man like Herbert Hoover again. People seemed to be content. Fifty dollars paid the rent. Freaks were in a circus tent. Those were the days. Take a little Sunday spin. Go watch the Dodgers win. Have yourself a dandy day that cost you under a fin. Hair was short and skirts were long. Kate Smith really sold a song. I don't know what went wrong. Those were the days. In some of those lines you could hear some of the prejudice, some of the bigotry, and some of the sexism. Archie Bunker's mindset was pretty binary. Men had certain roles and women had certain roles and never the two shall cross. Archie did not have a lot of respect for anyone. Uh, you know, I can still hear him. Oh, Edith, dear, don't be a dingbat, right? That was his favorite phrase for Edith, his wife. And he would call his son-in-law meathead. His son tried to advance some social progress, but there was always pushback. The question could come, where did Archie get some of his viewpoints? Was it part of his upbringing? We might look to the workplace. He worked on the docks. We might see this attitude reflected uh, with the perspective that he took on the Bible. And he often quoted the Bible as a way of reinforcing some of his viewpoints. And you can do that, you know. The Bible is a pretty patriarchal book when you look at the stories that are there. And we know that sometimes what happens is when there is a strong patriarchal society, often women can be treated as kind of second-class citizens. And I'll show you what I mean by that in a moment. Sometimes women, um, they have so much more to give than what they're allowed to give because they have to keep their place. So here's the question for this morning. Is that the way God views women? Are they only helpers or can they be leaders too? Well, often people will go to the Bible and one of the ones that they will go to is in Genesis chapter 2. And this is the creation account. And you might be familiar with this passage. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable, what? Helper was found. So it talks about how God creates Eve. And the man says, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. What's interesting here is the woman was created to be a helper to the man. That's her role in society. These same people won't tell you, though, that this term helper is also used of God. God, our helper. So it doesn't have anything to do with subservience. It, what it has to do is with this complementary role of helping the man be all that he can be and vice versa. Well, people will take that and then they'll run with it into the New Testament. This is 
the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy, a young man who's trying to pastor a church in a very cosmopolitan city called Ephesus. And he writes to Timothy, I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adoring themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. And then this one. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. And then he goes back to that Genesis passage. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who deceived, was deceived, and she became a sinner. But the woman will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Makes you a little uncomfortable, doesn't it? You know, Emma was up here singing. If you took that literally, she shouldn't be holding a mic, right? If you took that literally, then there is no arena in which a woman should be up speaking to a man. And these things happen. Sometimes in some settings where a woman is introduced to speak, those who hold to kind of this literal interpretation will get up and, these men will get up and walk out of the room. Is that what God has in mind or is there something else that is going on here? Well, let's think through this for a moment because I want to show you a video. And this video is reminding us of, in the ancient world, much of our concepts of God are formed with a male mentality. And I think this is very instrumental in helping us to understand why the ancient world looked at the roles of men and women the way they did. This man is... Uh, a doctor, Dr. Hector Garcia, and uh, what he's going to talk about for just a couple of minutes is God the dominant male. That's always the way God is portrayed in pictures, right? So you think of Michelangelo and the Sistine Chapel and the representation of God is as a strong male. And do you realize that the majority of many of the religions in the world still see God as kind of the ultimate strong, powerful man? So human potential is vast, but maybe, just maybe, we are limiting the potential of our better half because of the role that God or the image of God plays in our life. Let's watch the video. I do spend a lot of time studying, especially, you know, masculinity, the psychology of men and masculinity. Um, I think that's a, that's a pretty strong component of evolutionary science. It looks at how our reproductive drives um, get expressed. Uh, and, and my focus has been, you know, through, through religion and politics. So that's, that's a big component of that because, you know, we are reproducing beings you know that is a prime objective of all life that that you know that is sexually re reproducing and it comes out in ways that is not expected a lot of times you know like in like in our religions like in imagining imagining uh, a dominant male god in the clouds that really is intensely concerned about our sexual behaviors that expects women to cover themselves to you know, uh, ensure those vows. 
our gods do look like us. Our gods look like primates. But the thing is, we're primates. We are, we are social primates. And, and we spent all of our evolution in dominance hierarchies. I don't believe masculinity is bad. <laughs> there are many aspects of masculinity that can be good and pro-social, right? I mean, uh, you know, men are also protectors, you know. Um, men are also scholars, men are also nurturers, you know, and, and there's not just one kind of masculinity. So just because you, you know, I, I tend to focus on the darker side of, of male psychology just because of the implications that it has for human suffering. Men commit most of the world's violence, which is not to be confused with the idea that all men are violent. <laughs> but it is a male enterprise in so many ways. And, um, and in our evolutionary past, you know, it benefited men to, it benefited their fitness to engage in violence on occasion. Um, so, um, for example, there's a pattern that, 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 we, that we see um, across our history as a species where men would uh, form coalitions, raid the outside tribe, slaughter all the men, slaughter all the boys, take all the, the, the females as their spoils of war, take all their goods. Um, that kind of behavior has far greater implications for male reproductive fitness than female reproductive fitness. Women wouldn't benefit evolutionarily by tearing into the rival tribe, killing all the women and mating with as many men as possible. As possible. Men did have a, an incentive to do that. And men still engage in that in some parts of the world. We see that behavior in, in you know, ISIS and Boko Haram have, have, have done that. We see this in the Bible as being, um, you know, ordered by God himself. You know, God told Moses, go into the rival tribe and do this. What I write about in my latest book is how when women are given a greater share of, of the, you know, a greater role in the political process, life improves for everybody uh, because of their evolved psychology, because how it manifests in, in, in policy. Um, education increases, social services increase. You know, um, the medical care becomes more available. And, and part of that is because uh, men have an evolutionary incentive for inequality. There, there's a reproductive incentive to have more than the other man, right? When Moses' men torn to the rival tribes and, and, and uh, killed all the men, they took their women. They wanted, they wanted what they had. They wanted more than their competitors. They eliminated their competitors. So to put this in perspective of how this, how this translates to our reproductive biology, the person with the Guinness Book of World Records for the most children had 888 children and 500 concubines. He was a Moroccan sultan whose name was uh, Ismail the Bloodthirsty. So... Um, Rest assured, he earned that, that moniker by slaughtering all the men from neighboring villages, neighboring societies, killing them, taking their women, taking their goods to fortify his army, to, 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 to build his army, I should say, and fortify his cities. And, 
And um, that was not an egalitarian enterprise. It was driven by reproductive greed. And so this psychology works its way up into how nations are governed, how tax laws are formed, um, stances on, on you know, equal pay for women or, or affirmative action, which all have to do with you know, equality or, or having more than the other person. What if this mentality that Dr. Garcia is talking about really does not come from God? What if patriarchy isn't divinely ordained, but what if it's actually a result of sin? What if after the fall, the reason that patriarchy becomes so corrupt in the world is because of some of the things that he said? There's an advantage uh, for the males to take all the females. Well, one of the curses that's mentioned in Genesis chapter 3 mentions that there will be a desire uh, that, um, that will be between the sexes and that they will kind of butt heads and they will kind of be in conflict with each other. And the echoes of patriarchy then parade its way down through the New Testament. We begin to see that it's not fair. There are all kinds of different women in the world and they all have different gifts and they all have uh, different things to contribute to our world. And you heard Dr. Garcia talk about some of the things that happen when we allow women to emerge into leadership roles. And I think we've made steps forward. Here in the United States, we have for the very first time a woman vice president of color. That's an advancement. That's making progress, at least in my perspective. A lot of times um, the pushback on a strict literal uh, interpretation of some of the verses that I read for you earlier uh, would say, no, no, that we're not making progress. We're actually uh, reversing in our country. Well, there are inexcusable reasons that people give to limit the potential of women in our society. Women are too emotional. Women aren't as strong as men. And if they're real, real bigoted, uh, women aren't as smart as men. And we just know that is not true. But yet, patriarchy has been the predominant worldview through most cultures throughout human history. And just like Christians would use scripture to justify slavery and genocide and other terrible things, many times scripture has been taken and used in such a way uh, to diminish the potential of women. And I truly believe that if you look closely at the stories that are found in the scripture, it tells a different tale. You know, you look at all the pictures of different types of women that are on the screen behind me, and if you want to find verses that justify a patriarchal viewpoint to keep them silent or to keep them in their place, you can find them. However, that's not the big story of the Bible. When you actually look at the stories of the Bible and you see some of the women that are in the Bible and you go deeper than a proof text here or there, 
what you're going to find is that biblical women actually contradict the patriarchy of their time. There's a woman named Deborah in the book of Judges chapter 4. And in the book of Judges, those who are called judges are actually political and military leaders. And in Judges chapter 4, this woman becomes the judge of the nation of Israel, and we're told that she leads the army into battle. This goes contrary to everything in its day. There's a name of a woman named Huldah, and she's a prophet in 2 Kings chapter 22. And she is an expert in Torah law, and she is able to help Josiah the king uh, revive the nation in their commitment to the covenant. We all have heard of Esther in the Old Testament, who saved her entire race because of her bravery against the genocide. Incidentally, we did a couple of years ago an entire series on the book of Esther called The Queen's Gambit. Uh, that's on our website if you're interested, where I take a chapter-by-chapter chapter look at her story. It's interesting that Abraham's concubine by the name of Hagar in Genesis chapter 16 is the very first person in the Bible to give God a name. And she gives God the name El Roy. Not Elroy like in, you know, uh, what was that cartoon? Uh, <laughs> rather, El, Elohim, Roy, means God sees. Well, the story is Hagar bears Abraham a son, and by the time Sarah has a son, she kicks Hagar out, and uh, Hagar is found in the desert, and she cries out to God, and God comes to her aid as a single mother who has no rights or privileges in her society. Fast forward into the New Testament, we have Mary, who is the God-bearer, the incarnation of Jesus uses the womb of Mary. We read earlier about Mary of Bethany who anoints the head of Jesus. And if you look closely at that passage, you saw the disciples getting upset at what she was doing because they understood the oil on top of the head is what was used in the Old Testament to anoint a king. A woman is anointing Jesus for burial and then his resurrection to be king. They're using the excuse of money. She breaks an alabaster jar and is full of perfume that is extravagantly expensive and pours it on the head of Jesus and they come and they say, uh, and of course they have money at the forefront. That could have been sold and used to help the poor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We know all about that. Rather, they recognize the symbolism of this. What they were refusing to do, she was willing to do in showing extravagant love to Jesus. Think about Mary Magdalene, this first disciple of Jesus, who in John chapter 20 is the first witness of the resurrection, and she is the one that goes back and tells the disciples that Jesus is alive. There's a woman named Lydia in Acts chapter 16 who is a businesswoman and she uh, makes purple uh, cloth and uh, when she comes to know Jesus, she opens her home and one of the very first churches in the city of Philippi was in the home of Lydia. 
There's a woman by the name of Phoebe at the end of the book of Romans that Paul entrusts to take the epistle of Romans to all of the house churches in Rome. Not a man, a woman. And she is the one that gets up and reads this letter of Romans to all of the house churches in Rome. So we need to ask the question then, well, then what do we do with that passage that Paul gives to us in 1 Timothy? Why is he telling the women to be quiet? Why is he telling the women not to have a leadership role? Well, that's very situational. Ephesus was a very complicated city, very complex. And it had all kinds of rival things going on in it. And one of the things that happened in this early church at Ephesus was there were some women that tried to overuse their authority to quiet the men. And Paul is pushing back on that. But I think what we find in his later uh, position, uh, that uh, not later position, but in the later chapter of Romans, is that he didn't really look down upon women as much as we think. He entrusted Phoebe to be the caretaker of probably one of the most important letters in the New Testament. I believe that patriarchy is a part of the curse that is found in Genesis chapter 3. It's this pushback, this push and pull that often happens between the sexes, and often the systemic sins that keep women in their place is such for financial reasons. Women are not making as much money as men in certain roles where they're doing the exact same thing. I don't think that is God-honoring. What I do think is God-honoring is both the sexes working together in partnership, sharing each other's gifts, and sharing the vision of a better world that w- in which we live. And I do believe that Jesus shared that vision. Take a look at what Jesus did. Jesus, when you read the stories in the Gospels, ministered to women He protected them, he empowered them, he honored them publicly, he released the voice of women to be known in their culture, he confided in women, he was funded by a group of women in his earthly ministry, and he spoke of women as examples to follow, as such was the case of the woman who anointed the head of Jesus. She shall be spoken of for generations to come. And here we are, 2023, still talking about what she did on that night so long ago. Jesus would come to the aid of a woman. In John chapter 8, there was a woman dragged in front of all the men in the town, and she was accused of adultery, and they're all picking up stones to, to stone her. And Jesus bends down in the ground and he writes something in the dirt. And one by one, they begin to turn and walk away. When he says this, those of you who are without sin, you cast the first stone. And all of them began to understand that this unfair system where you stone the woman in adultery, but not the man, okay? The man's nowhere to be found in that passage. What we find is that Jesus is impacting his world and he's impacting his culture and he's pushing against the bias of his day. And so today, here we are, these many years later, where we need to continue to do that because I truly do believe that the table is open to all. And what we find is that what I began with this morning, 
For in Christ Jesus, Galatians 3, 26 through 28, you all are children of God through faith. You know what? We are all children of God through faith. And he says, there's no longer Jew or Greek. There's no longer male or female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. That is radical in its day. It's radical in our day at times too. But in this fighting for a good faith, one of the elements is to lift women up, not to tear them down, to empower them, not to push them away, and to recognize their giftedness and say thank you. Join me in prayer before we take the Lord's Supper.